1: the ft
2: in this week's show bp's fourth quarter results
1: for me the more interesting aspect of it was really flat earnings in in the fourth quarter i thought that was actually very telling
2: $100 oil
0: before the events in egypt began prices had been flirting with the $100 a barrel mark and it's very clear that it's the turmoil in egypt that sent them up to that level
2: and china's appetite for unconventional gas
3: We've seen a lot of movements in the last year to go overseas and make acquisitions or investments that are really targeting unconventional gas techniques. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer.
2: Joining me in the studio this week are the FT's energy correspondent, David Blair, Robert Wright, the paper's transport correspondent, Lex Writer, Vincent Boland, and from our Beijing office, Leslie Hook. Now, let's start with BP. It's been a very big week for the UK Oil Group with its fourth quarter results and Bob Dudley's long-awaited strategy update as chief executive. Almost immediately afterwards, we also heard of a court ruling that potentially scuppers BP's proposed alliance with Russia's Rosneft. Uh, now, Vincent, I just wondered if we could tackle the results first off. What did you make of them?
1: Two things, really. First of all, I was surprised at the amount of focus that was given to the restoring the dividend. That seems to have been what a lot of the analysts were interested in and how it would play among investors and and the level of the dividend and the scope for raising it, et cetera, et cetera. For me, the more interesting aspect of it was really flat earnings in, in the fourth quarter. I thought that was actually very telling Exxon Mobil's were 53% higher in the fourth quarter. And
2: they were also below annual expectations. They were considerably
1: below. So I think that um, the fourth quarter results, if you strip away the sort of noise about the dividend and the strategy, and obviously they're all very important. The bottom line is that BP has a lot of the sort of issues that it had before the Gulf of Mexico crisis, which is it's shedding sort of marginal production. Its production is falling and costs are you know as high as they ever were. So I think that, that on the pure production front, BP has a challenge that is being obscured by the other challenges that it faces.
2: Bob Dudley talked about uh, the strategy update, talked about wanting to seize the moment from the Deepwater Horizon accident, sort of they're shedding assets already. He wants to sort of use that opportunity to turn BP into a sort of nimbler company that isn't shackled by production numbers or production targets, able to access exploration areas and so forth. But again, obviously risky given all that noise going on in Russia with its partners in TNK-BP.
1: There's no doubt that BP has a huge opportunity to kind of redefine what it is to be a super major. And that's a huge challenge for everybody involved. And and I think he's going about it the right way in in many respects. He's shedding marginal assets. It was a a wise move to exit from Texas City and from Carson, the two big refiners in the US. I think you could argue that remaking BP and reshaping the, the industry at the very top would require something even more radical from the likes of BP, which is to exit the downstream altogether. But companies are still sort of holding back from that. So I think you can question the extent to which it's possible to deliver a totally new BP if it's going to continue doing all the things it used to do before the Gulf of Mexico crisis, but in perhaps a smaller way. So you might have a smaller BP, but maybe not necessarily a very different, BP.
2: Just in terms of Russia, then. I mean, again, Bob Dudley at the press conference was was trying to sort of shrug off this dispute with his Russian partners in T BP. Yet when you when you talk to the Russians, you know that mood music is, is very different. Where do you see this going, and how big a deal financially and possibly strategically is it? Could it be for BP?
1: Well, I mean, if the alliance with the Rosneft has to be reversed because a court in London decides, or an arbitration hearing in Sweden decides, that what has to happen. It's an, it's an incredible setback for Mr. Dudley. I mean, I wonder whether he could survive as CEO if that had to happen. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think that it's probably a bigger problem for BP than they thought it would be. And they must have realized that there could be an issue with um, the partners in T and KBP that they would object to You know, BP getting into bed with their biggest competitor. I think that's fair enough. So I think it's a bigger challenge than they would have allowed at the beginning. But I think it's a challenge that is very amenable to a financial settlement. So this, the solution probably lies in in BP paying the um, AAR consortium, that's the partner in TNKBP, paying them a sum of money, a fairly substantial sum of money, or bringing TNKBP into the Rosneft Alliance in some fashion. I think it has to be one of those two at the moment, I think the the financial settlement one is the more realistic.
2: Bob Dudley's now got what eighteen billion dollars, I think, of cash on his balance sheet. Um, he he doesn't want to sort of lose, you know, a big chunk of that uh, in order to keep his Russian friends happy. But you know, it sounds like he might have to. Well,
1: exactly. I mean, I think I think the the, the dispute between the oligarchs and BP, um, you know, it, okay, it's sort of dramatic and and it's a very good news story, so to speak. But I think it is actually serious. And I I suspect that the BP board wasn't expecting such a problem with the oligarchs and may have been slightly taken aback by the aggressiveness with which Michael Friedman and his partners have pursued this issue. I'm not quite sure what their agenda is, though. And I think that, you know, given the nature of who they are, I think there is definitely an agenda there. It's just it's, it's not clear to me what precisely that agenda is. But, you know, if it scuppers the Rosneft alliance, I think that, you know, it's a very, very serious setback for BP. But I don't expect that to happen.
2: It just sounds like the the Russians are probably in the driving seat on this one uh, rather than Bob Dudley.
1: I think potentially they are, yes. And that would be surprising, I think, for BP, for for Bob Dudley himself and for the board. But also I think it would be very surprising for BP investors. I think there's a legitimate question to be asked about BP strategy, if that's the case. I mean, if somebody else is in the driving seat on a particular aspect of the, of, the, of the alliance with Rosneft.
2: We'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Let's keep with oil but move to the surging prices, which have breached $100 a barrel. Despite entering what some people have called the danger zone, traders and analysts are predicting prices are unlikely to challenge the records of 2008. David and Robert have both been watching recent events in Egypt. And David, if I can start with you, um, how big a part has the unrest in Egypt played in pushing up the price of oil recently?
0: Before the events in Egypt began, prices have been flirting with the $100 a barrel mark. And it's very clear that it's the turmoil in Egypt that sent them up to that level. I think the market has two fears. First and foremost, they fear the contagion effect. They fear that unrest in Egypt may spread elsewhere in the Middle East and perhaps affect the most significant oil producers. And then as a secondary concern, the market is worried about Egypt's importance as a transit route for oil supplies. Egypt itself is not a significant producer. It turns out about 740,000 barrels a day, almost entirely for domestic consumption. So its importance, if there is one, is as a transit route.
2: Because I was talking to some of the oil companies yesterday and BP was saying that they'd sent some of the families of their employees back to the UK just as a precautionary measure. And you wrote today in the paper about a pipeline in the country that is quite significant in terms of transport of oil and gas.
0: Yes, there's a pipeline which links the Red Sea with the Mediterranean, which has a capacity of 2.5 million barrels a day, but is actually operating significantly below that. It's believed to be transporting about 1.1 million barrels a day at the moment. And the market clearly does have some fears about the consequences if that pipeline were to be sabotaged or damaged in any way. However, it should be clear that even if that were to happen the Suez Canal would be an alternative route for that oil. And even if in extremis something were to go wrong there, then tankers could be rerouted around the Cape of Good Hope. So it's not as if the whole world's supply chain is hanging by a threat.
2: Robert, if I can bring you in here, I mean, you've been talking to some of your tanker contacts. What, What are they saying?
4: What one should bear in mind is that the Suez Canal is no longer the vital route for transporting oil that it used to be. I think people probably have a little bit of a folk memory of the closure from 1967 to 1975, when it really did hurt the world's oil supply, because an awful lot more oil was coming through the canal then. But what we should bear in mind is that the very largest oil tankers, when they're fully laden, can't get through the canal, the very large crude carriers, which each carry about 2 million barrels barrels of oil. So those tankers are already going round the Cape of Good Hope, so we should bear that in mind. In fact, at the moment, only about 15 to 20% of the traffic through the canal is, is oil tankers. It's really container shipping, that has to worry about things. But, as David was saying, this Sumed pipeline is very important. And I'm told that the Egyptian military has been moving to protect the ports at either end to ensure tankers can load and unload there. So there is a degree of reassurance there.
2: And is, is there a bit of a sort of silver lining for tankers as well in the whole story? I mean, they've sort of seen their rates drop recently, haven't they? Is this pushing things up or...?
4: that That's a very good point. On Friday, when it looked briefly as if the canal had actually shut... Shares in Frontline, the world's biggest crude oil tanker operator, went up quite sharply because people were hoping that actually tankers would have to go further because, as you say, rates are really poor for oil tankers at the moment. They're, they're not earning their operating costs. So it's a pretty miserable time to own oil tankers. And really anything that forces tankers to go further, to make longer journeys, is good news for tankers because it effectively reduces the number of ships available. There are too many ships at the moment... People were optimistic that a closure of the canal could soak up some of that extra capacity. Sadly for tanker operators, but uh, happily for everybody else, it looks as if that's not happening.
2: David, just finally, has anything happened to the price at all? I mean, obviously, um, President Mubarak came out late last night and said that he would um, step down at the next election later on this year. Has that changed uh, the market at all?
0: No, I don't believe that President Mubarak's announcement changed the market of itself, and prices have fallen. They're, They're just hovering slightly below $100 now.
2: We'll be watching the situation closely. Thanks very much. And to a final topic for today, China and the country's seemingly vast appetite for unconventional gas is also impacting on global M&A figures. We've had quite a few uh, deals recently announced by the likes of Scenic buying into unconventional gas assets in North America. Now, Leslie, I just wondered if you could talk me through the sort of huge appetite of the Chinese. You know, why are they going for unconventional gas at the moment? Why is that a hot area?
3: Well, China actually has a lot of natural gas uh, domestically, both offshore and onshore. And a lot of China's onshore gas is what we call unconventional which means that it's trapped in rock sometimes that could be shale rock and it needs to be cracked out. So we've seen a lot of movements in the last year to go overseas and make acquisitions or investments that are really targeting unconventional gas techniques. Last March we saw PetroChina and Shell pair up to buy Australia's Aero Energy and what's special about Aero is that they specialize in coal seam gas as it's known down under which is gas that's trapped in coal. We also also saw in June CNPC, China's largest producer, signed an MOU with Encana, which is the largest natural gas producer in Canada, to work together on some of their unconventional gas um, deposits. We don't know yet what monetary value that uh, might be placed on that, but there was an MOU there, and then just this week we've seen another deal between Cenug and uh, Chesapeake Energy. That's the second deal in the last couple months between Cenug and Chesapeake. Chesapeake is the leader in the in the U.S. Uh, sort of unconventional gas space and uh, CNUC has paired up with them for projects in Texas, uh, Wyoming and Colorado.
2: Why are they buying all these assets or buying into all these assets in the the US and and in Australia? Is it because China is looking for resources or access to resources for itself or is it because they're actually after something else like the expertise uh, in terms of how to do this which they could possibly
3: then use back home? These recent M&A deals seem like they're more about the technology rather than actually getting the resources back to China With Chesapeake, for example, Chesapeake Energy, the way those deals are structured, Scenic will take a 33% stake in the blocks. There are a couple of different blocks under consideration. Chesapeake will continue to operate them. And that will allow scenics engineers and you know project managers and geologists to travel to the U.S., interact with Chesapeake, and just figure out how they're doing what they're doing. I would imagine all that natural gas would probably just be sold into the U.S. market, although I don't know for sure. Uh, we do see some projects overseas where China is trying to acquire access to natural gas, usually in the form of LNG. We've seen investments in LNG terminals all over the world by Chinese companies from Australia to Iran, and that is also a huge uh, trend.
2: And what's happening in, in terms of unconventional gas development in China? I mean, a lot of the um, big oil majors or international oil majors that I talk to, they're all travelling to China. They all want to get access to that. And, and shale gas is certainly something that they do talk about. But we haven't seen any real projects coming up. Is it something? Presumably, it's a very sort of long-term play.
3: Well, natural gas is kind of the darling of the Chinese government right now because it's cleaner burning than oil. And- And it's available domestically, so it's secure. You don't have to worry about you know supplies being cut off so there are these huge government ambitious government targets to grow natural gas consumption by like 25% per year from now to 2015 uh, natural gas has really been focused on by the chinese government and uh, that's part of the reason why the state owned oil companies have been responding and doing all these natural gas acquisitions domestically in china um, there are several shale gas projects and coal bed methane projects however none of those is on a large at commercial scale yet. Part of that is because it takes time to learn about these new formations and just, just do the geological research that's needed to understand how you can tap into shale gas, for example. Part of it is because of the the pricing in China it still makes unconventional gas a little bit expensive for the Chinese market. and A third factor is pipeline access can be very difficult, which is with gas, you really have to put it in a pipeline. So that can be a deterrent for some of the foreign uh, unconventional gas experts to come into China because they can't always get pipeline access, even if they do find gas. So the regulatory and policy environment has been changing and really improving over the last couple of years. We still haven't quite seen the takeoff in China in unconventional gas that we saw, for example, recently in the U.S. Thank you very much. And that's all we have time for today. All
2: that's left is for me to thank my guests, David Blair, Robert Wright, Vincent Boland and Leslie Hook. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye.
0: For more downloads, go to ft.com
4: forward slash podcasts.